All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, it should be a hard uh, black, hardback black Bible uh, under the seat in front of you. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, welcome to the service. Glad that you guys are here. My name is Mike uh, Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony, uh, and we are excited uh, to worship this morning. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, and we'll pick up in verse 10 this morning. Uh, years ago, when I was in high school, I went to South Padre Island with my family. We went on a vacation uh, down to South Padre. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Spent about a week there uh, during the summer. Um, and so we did all the kind of South Padre Islandy type things. Okay, we ate lots of seafood. Uh, we went fishing in the bay. Um, we went jet skiing, which has got to be the closest thing to heaven uh, that we can have <laughs> here on earth, jet skiing. Um, and then me and my dad decided to go deep sea fishing. Uh, so I had never been before. He had been. But we decided to go deep sea fishing. So we went to the little marina and we signed up for the trip. And the trip was uh, the longest trip. It was six hours. You would go into the ocean. Uh, and then you would kind of anchor and fish for a few hours. And then come six hours back. Um, so I was real excited about going. Uh, and so we uh, took our sea sickness patches and kind of prepared for the trip. And so we get up way early in the morning, get on the boat, uh, and go for six hours, which is a really really long time, especially if you have ADD, okay? Not a lot to do on the boat, um, just kind of water all around you. Um, but we go six hours out into the ocean, and then finally we get there, and we anchor down, and it's time uh, to start fishing. And so they hook us up with these, I mean, these just real intense fishing poles that are kind of like hooked on to the, um, to the side of the boat. It's a big boat, probably about 70 of us, 70 or 80 of us on the ship. Uh, and so it's this big kind of boat with this kind of cabin in the middle, and so we're all kind of in a circle around the boat. Uh, and so we start fishing for a few hours, um, of course, I'm not getting anything, uh, and so I'm just miserable the entire time. I don't know if it's my technique. I don't know. The fish weren't coming to me, but the people right to my right and left were getting lots of fish. Uh, just, I mean, over and over and over again. I found out that day, fishing was not my thing. That was the first time I went deep to fishing and the last. Um, and so they're, they're bringing stuff up, and all of a sudden, maybe about after an hour of fishing or so, there starts to be this buzz uh, on the boat. And we get word that someone on the other side of the boat, so across the little glass thing on the other side of the boat, has hooked a hammerhead shark. Um, and so everyone's kind of like, kind of buzzing, kind of real excited about, oh my gosh, there's a hammerhead over there somewhere. Uh, and the crew kind of comes out and they say, okay, we've decided that we're going to try to bring the hammerhead on board. Uh, the rules of the sea or whatever right now say we can bring one on board if we want to per trip. We think we're going to try to get this thing on board. Uh, and so they clear everybody off that side of the boat. Uh, and so we have 70 people kind of crammed on this one side of the boat. And they spend maybe 30, 45 minutes just working this thing. Of course, they take the guy, the amateur away, and they get control of the fishing pole. And they're just kind of working this thing going back and forth. Eventually, it's like a war of attrition. They get it to where it's swimming real close to the boat. And so I don't know if you've ever seen how they do this uh, or are aware of this. They take these huge metal spears uh, and when it's close enough to the boat, they just try to spear it uh, in the side to get a good grip on it. Because you're not going to pull that thing on board with a wire. Yeah, with string. Uh, and so they, uh, they get maybe four or five big old guys with spears in the, the hammerhead side. Uh, and then before they do it, they come out with another announcement. They say, no matter what happens, do not go on that side of the boat. We're about to bring this thing up, and it's, we're just going to see what happens. You, you aren't allowed to move at this point. And they... they work this thing up over the side and then the moment you can see he's going to fall onto the boat they run and they drop the spears they drop everything and they run to the side and it lands and there's kind of this like hush over the boat and it's 
seven and a half, eight feet, I think I remember, this big hammerhead. This thing is huge. It's like Jaws happening right in front of us. And there's kind of this hush, and I'm sure it was only a couple seconds, but it seemed like forever, where it just is sitting there, spears coming out of its side, kind of blood trickling down into the water on the, the side of the boat. And all of a sudden, its tail rears up and goes, bow! And it sounded like a cannon had just exploded, and the entire boat goes and shifts over. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh my gosh, that's why they didn't want us over there. That thing would snap you in half with one hit of its tail. And so for the next hour, a good 60 minutes, which doesn't sound like much, but in real life, it's a long time, right? Just sit there for 60 minutes. That thing flails and flails and flails. The boat's rocking and rocking and rocking, and we're all just sitting there watching, uh, kind of regretting the decision to bring it on board. This thing looks like it's never going to die, and it looks like it's going to bring the boat overboard. And it's just thrashing around. I've never been around such pure, raw muscle. The spears, you have these like 8, 10 feet pulse metal spears. Some of them just snapped in half as he's flailing around because they're still on his side. Well, eventually after about an hour, it starts kind of dying down. No pun intended. Okay, He, he reaches his last shark days. Uh, and he closes his eyes for the last time and kind of calms down. So then they drag him, kind of in the middle, start cleaning him, things like that. We get back, take pictures with the hammerhead. It was an awesome trip. Um, made up for not catching anything. Um, but there was this really interesting time where he was on, the, on board, right? I think when they had the spears in him and then when they got him on board, that was kind of like his last hurrah. I mean, he was, he was pretty much done at that point. But he still had maybe a good hour, you know, like thrashing. Uh, and it reminded me of this story that I heard once about a couple. They were missionaries in Africa. And they were living in kind of this village hut with the locals. And one day they found a snake in their hut. And not like a garden snake, but like a big boa constrictor, wrap around you, eat you type snake. Uh, and so they left and go get a local. What do we do about this? And the local comes back and says, I'll take care of it. So he goes in and he chops the head off of the snake. Comes back out and tells the, the American missionaries, you're not going to want to go back in there for three to four hours. And like, well, why not? I thought, you, I thought you just killed it. You said you cut his head off. He's like, okay, yeah. But the way the blood and just the, the brain works of the snake here, he's got a good maybe three or four hours of him thinking he's alive um, and him moving around. And in fact, he could still constrict you and kill you without his head, just the way the blood's flowing. Um, he's still got some energy left in his body. He's still got some muscles that will be moving while he's going. Um, I tell you these two stories. I have a point. I don't always, but I have a point. <laughs> You've got this shark up on a boat, thrashing around, even though, I mean, he's probably got the distance just the moment he gets on the boat. And you've got this snake who has his head cut off, but still has kind of this energy in it, and still maybe has some destructive potential, even though it's technically dead. And I think that, using those stories as an analogy, you and I are living in the time period between the beast being brought onto the boat but still thrashing a little bit, and the snake having the head cut off, but still having a little bit of energy in it. So let me explain um, what I mean by that. We started a series last week on Easter called Victory, uh, and what we wanted to look at was how, or, or what we mean when we say that Christ has risen in victory, that when he rose from the dead, he conquered all the powers that enslaved creation. Um, and so we commonly think of, in our kind of subculture of Christianity, we think of Jesus as something that um, is a legal type thing. We think of him dying for our sins. Um, the resurrection doesn't make that much sense for us because you don't need to resurrect to have someone die for your sins. But he did, kind of just theological showing off. Okay, he resurrected. Um, and the resurrection and the death, his whole work for us, the gospel, is our forgiveness. We had sins, this legal debt over us, and we've been forgiven, and we'll get that benefit when we die. We won't be punished for those things. But in the scriptures we saw last week, there's this other thread of thought. 
which is that from our sin in Genesis 3, from the beginning of, of time when, when sin came into creation, there were these other forces that came into creation and started plaguing us, started oppressing us. Things that are here that God does not desire to be here. So we, we even talk about sin. In the scripture, sin is often personified, capital S, S-I-N. In Genesis 4, a chapter after the fall, sin is talking and stalking human beings. And God says, be careful, it wants you. And we've talked about it in our own experience, right? Sometimes, if you've ever had a situation like this, maybe an addiction or just kind of a habitual sin that you've struggled with, um, sin, in a sense, seems bigger than you. It, in a sense, it tempts you, right? It's not just your own decisions. It whispers to you. It follows you. It lures you. It draws you in. You should say, sin, when we sin, we invited this force in that, in a sense, has us as slaves. It's enslaved us. And then um, the scripture says, when you look out into the world and you see sickness, when you see um, things like um, all these disabilities, all these um, debilitating diseases, when you see cancer, when you see AIDS, when you see all of these things, you're seeing things that God did not intend to be in his creation. You're seeing people being plagued by things that weren't supposed to be there. And then all of that leads to death, which was not a part of the plan. And then behind all of that, you have what we call these demonic forces kind of pulling the strings, the devil and the demons. We, we have in the New Testament these powers that we saw. They're called the powers and authorities, arche and exousia, powers and authorities. And, and we talked about what that is um, as kind of these superhuman forces pushing civilization, if you'll remember from last week. We use this kind of language with the free market, right? You watch the market move and you try to follow the market. Well, there's no like personal market making decisions, right? It's everyone's actions, but it seems like it has a life of its own, almost like greed or consumerism, right? We're greedy people. We make greedy choices, but it's like we live in a greedy world that creates us in greed, that enslaves us in greed. If you ever tried to not be enslaved to greed, you found that it's hard. You found that toys whisper to you and trinkets call your name. Spend your money here. Spend your money here. It's, it's bigger than us. It's outside of us. And, and on the cross and through the resurrection, we saw from Colossians last week, the scriptures say Jesus beat all of those forces, that all of the things that have plagued and enslaved creation, he has conquered. Colossians 2 says he triumphed over them. He made a fool of them. He exposed them for what they really are. He has victory over them. The early Christians had this triumphal nature to their proclamation. They thought very clearly, we've won. We've won. Our God has come. He's defeated the things that have enslaved us. But here's where the rubber meets the road. There's this tension in that proclamation. Because you and I, if we're being biblical, would say he's defeated sickness. He's defeated death. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. But then we go to the hospital. Then we turn on the news. And then we talk to friends and have our own struggles and temptations and our own sins that we can't seem to escape every now and then. There seems to be this tension between his victory, but yet oftentimes it doesn't appear to be like there's much victory around. In a sense, I would say maybe we're between two worlds. The old world of sin and death and its slavery and the new world of life and peace and freedom. And I think maybe the best analogy to view this, and, and we'll go into this, is, is of the beast who's been killed, but maybe still has a little bit of destructive energy in it. So let's go to Ephesians 6, and, and we'll look at how Paul explains this. Um, we'll pick up in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10, uh, read along with me. Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Okay, so there's this, this tension between our proclamation of Jesus' victory and our current reality, our current struggle that we're in that Paul's spelling out here. There are two pendulums that people go to as Christians um, when they try to make sense of this tension, okay? And, and both pendulums, as kind of pendulums or extremes tend to be, are probably a little bit wrong. The, the truth is often in the middle here. Um, one side goes to pretending like nothing really happened on the cross, Pretending like there is no real victory that's entered into the world. Um, and I think most kind of evangelical Christianity falls into this, maybe without even thinking it or without even, I mean, they might not even agree to it. But, but here's what it would look like. When you emphasize kind of, again, the judicial sense of the cross of the gospel, that you had sins, you had a punishment, a status on top of your head. And on the cross, the resurrection, Jesus forgave those sins. He took that punishment, which is true. And, and, and awesome and, and, and biblical. But when, when that's when you emphasize, when that's all that you have, it seems like that doesn't really take effect for you until you die. It seems like well, there's no real objective transformation in the world right now. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died and resurrected, there wasn't something real and powerful that actually happened to creation and then it started to keep happening and expanding in creation. You've just got this kind of one-off event that will take place for you when you die, you can pull out your card and say, I've had the, I've had, I made the deal. I'm, I'm free. I, I'm forgiven. And so there's, there's no real victory. Um, this would be like the kind of mindset you might know by like watching the world go to hell in a handbasket, right? That our job is not to, to see things change or anything like that. It's just to kind of watch things continue to spiral out of control, continue to be enslaved by these powers, by sickness and death and disease and injustice. But we've been set apart, okay? We'll, we'll sit here, watch it kind of burn, but when we die, we're okay, we're good. So in that view, you're on the, the one side of the pendulum that says there's really no victory over the things that have gone wrong in creation, other than you'll be forgiven, and you'll be sucked out of it as it kind of burns out, as it kind of gets destroyed, okay? The other side is complete victory. There's no more struggle anymore. We've had complete victory. There's, there's no more tension in our lives. So this is what you would associate with the health and wealth type gospel, um, the name it and claim it, word of faith type gospel. So these are the people who would say, if you're sick, all you have to do is pray or do whatever kind of certain steps they have, and you'll be healed. And if you haven't done that, you just haven't done something right. Because there's no way that you should, as a Christian, have this sickness or have this disease or have these problems. Why? Because we're victorious. So you see that the pendulum... No victory, and then all victory. In the scriptures, though, there seems to be this in-between area where Jesus is Lord, where things have changed and are changing, but there's still this kind of struggle happening. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It'll be to your left just a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm a thinker, and so when I, when I hear people teach... Um, I, I'm constantly like, kind of questioning the things that I'm hearing. And I, I commonly hear, and again, in our subculture, I think that emphasizes the no victory. I hear things of um, statements towards this end that Satan is the ruler of this world, or Satan is king of this world, Satan is the one who has all the power, things of that nature. When I start hearing that, I get kind of riled up, and my hair on the back of my neck starts to stand up. And I, I just want to kind of, excuse me, raise my hand and go, what happened on the cross then? What happened on the resurrection? 
um, with the resurrection. I mean, has nothing changed in the world? Sure, Satan maybe was the ruler of the world. Sure, maybe there were these things in the same creation, but, but has something not changed? Look in, in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll put it on verse 20, 20 so we can get the context, okay? We'll be on our way to 25, though. Who, who's in charge right now after the resurrection? That's, that's my question here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ also shall all be made alive. 22, or 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then as coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul gives us a picture of the world as it is since the resurrection and until what he calls the end. And he says, at the end, all the enemies will be under Christ's feet. All of them will be gone. There won't be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. Revelation 21, right? No tears, no sorrow, no grief. We won't even remember those things. But who, who's in charge right now? What's happening right now? Well, Paul says here in verse 25, he must reign until he puts the enemies under his feet. So that right now he's reigning. At the end, Jesus doesn't start reigning. He doesn't now come into control. At the end, he gives the kingdom to the Father. <clears throat> says, mission accomplished. The enemies have been put away. The picture gets that right now, Jesus has been installed as the king of creation and is working out his plan to destroy the enemies. First John 3 would say the same thing. This is why the Son of Man came, to destroy the works of the devil. We should know this if you've been here and you've been working through our acts with us. Um, walking through the book of Acts, right? Remember the ascension. After Jesus resurrected, he ascends into heaven. This is not Jesus just going to heaven and watching the world kind of burn again until we die and get to kind of escape to heaven with him. You'll remember in Acts, he goes to the Father's right hand in a kingly fashion. He goes to the sea over him. He sits on his throne to continue his mission. You remember Acts 1 starts out by saying, here's a record of what Jesus continues to do and teach. As he reigns and slowly but surely putting all enemies under his feet. So how do we how do we describe this tension? Well, I think the two animal analogies are good. Um, there might be a better one. A guy named Oscar Coleman um, was a theologian um, in the late um, 90s, uh, mid 90s, late 90s, and he made the analogy to try to make sense of this um, tension. He made the analogy of World War II, of, of Jesus' victory to World War II. If you remember World War II, I'm not a World War II expert, um, but I, I know a little bit. Um, you have D-Day, okay? So you have the Allied um, armies versus the Axis um, powers. You have D-Day, um, which is when the Allied armies invade Normandy. They land and they invade uh, on June, what was it, June 6th of 1944, okay? Um, and, and when they invade, I'm told, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm told by, by those who do know a little bit more than me, that that was the decisive turning point of the war. Um, that, that at D-Day... I mean, that was the big moment, the decisive battle. Uh, and even both sides of the army here, um, the Allied and the Axis powers, they realized that whatever happened on D-Day was going to determine the outcome of the entire war. Whether the Germans were able to push back the Allies into the sea, or whether they'd be able to come and invade into Germany. Have you seen Seven Private Ryan? Okay, the opening scene, right? They land on Normandy, and they start to invade. And, and, and so apparently what happened, they invade from the, the beach, uh, and then you've got other forces um, Russia, I think, coming from the West. You've got these superpowers surrounding them. Um, by the time that it actually has happened, there's no way Germany is going to um, withstand. There's no way that Axis powers are going to withhold. Um, but here's the question. 
What did Hitler and the Axis powers, what did they do? Did they surrender? Did Hitler walk out with his hands up? No, they fought. They retreated and they fought. And there was real warfare going on, even though technically the war was over. The outcome was assured. The decisive battle had been fought. And it was 11 months later, on May 8th, 1945, that you have what's called VE Day, the Victory in Europe Day, when the Axis powers surrender, when the battle that had been won on D-Day is finally and fully implemented, and there's no more war at all. And Coleman says, maybe that's how we should view this tension. So Jesus' death, his his resurrection is D-Day. It's the decisive battle over the powers, over sin and sickness and death and Satan and all these things that plague creation. But there's still some, we might call them mop-up battles to be fought until the day, VE day, the end, when all enemies are under his feet. We could, we could think of it like uh, how an ancient king would win a battle. So think first century Roman Empire. Think empire, okay? So one king, lord of lords, would be ruling over all these different countries. And let's imagine there was a war, a civil war for control of the empire. One king wins, okay? He wins the war. But this is before, well before CNN and Twitter and texting and emailing, all these things. So there would be countries thousands of miles away who would not know about the victory, who might even have foreign armies there still fighting, And what that king would do when he wins his victory is he would get heralds, ambassadors. He would say, go tell people, go tell people what has happened. Go tell them that I've won, that the victory's been won. And they would go into these cities cities where the the fighting was still happening and they would say, King so-and-so has won. You're now called to live under his reign. Or you can continue to rebel and eventually he'll show up and, and crush this small little rebellion and implement his reign on his own. The choice is yours. It was an announcement. The announcement goes out and people are called to respond. Interestingly enough, that's what Matthew, Matthew's gospel ends with. Jesus raises. He doesn't talk about going to heaven when you die. He doesn't talk about your sins being forgiven. He says, all authority has been given to me. All of it. I'm the king. Go make disciples. Go tell people a victory has been won. And they're now called to live life in my kingdom. And Philippians 2 has this understanding. Not all knees will bow. Not every tongue will confess. There will still be some outlying areas that don't submit. But if you remember the hymn in Philippians, it says, One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess. What happens if a city keeps being rebellious and won't listen to the heralds? Well, eventually the king shows up and says, You didn't believe me, but I'm actually, I did win the battle. I did win the war. This is my kingdom. You do have to do what I say. Coleman says, This is how we should view this tension. We're living in between two worlds, between the decisive victory and then the final, we call it consummation, the completion of the victory that was won on the cross. So we're in this war zone. We're in this time of struggle where there's still serious fighting happening, but the victory has been assured. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. He's going to tell us, Paul is, um, how we fight how we, how we exist between these two worlds. Um, I'm not one for cute phrases, but if I was, here's one I would give you. Um, we fight not for victory, but from victory. See the switch there? When we struggle, when we fight, when we push back the darkness, when we um, push back against the things that try to enslave us, we're not fighting for victory. That's already been won. That's the triumphal nature, right, of the gospel. We're fighting from that victory, with his authority, with his power, with his 
victory that he's already won. So we don't fight for, we fight from. And, and Paul's going to lay out for us um, in the rest of this passage what that struggle, what that fight looks like. Okay, so um, 6, we'll pick it up in verse 14 where we left off. He says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which... I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This last little phrase, as Paul described himself, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I think that kind of captures the whole passage. What's an ambassador? Someone who's proclaiming the king, the victory that's been won. He's a herald sent out. But Paul's in chains. There's still a struggle happening. He's in literal chains. He's actually in prison in Rome when he writes this letter. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains. Victory's been won, but there are still these struggles that we have. And so in our case, right, um, there are brothers and sisters, Christians around the world who are facing real, actual, physical persecution, who are being imprisoned and or killed for their faith. You and I don't face that, I don't think. Okay, if you are, let me know. Um, we alert the news, let Anderson Cooper break it, okay? Um, but, but, but we still face these struggles, right, of, of, of sin. We, we still have these temptations. We still have sin creeping after us. And some of us still face sickness. We'll face it hard. And we still encounter death. And there are some times because of Christ's victory where he heals that. It happens. He heals miraculously, powerfully. There are some times when he doesn't. Because we're not there yet. One day there will be no sickness. You can be assured of that. The scriptures are very clear. You will not encounter cancer. You'll not know what it sounds like for a person to grieve after someone they loved has died. One day, Revelation, we won't have that experience Today we do. We have these struggles. So how do we deal with them? Paul says we have some armor that we're putting on so that we can stand firm. Um, in the, uh, a long time ago, there was this Chinese kind of war hero, and he wrote a book called The Art of War, um, which was given to me as a gift. And he has a quote in there that says that every battle is won or lost before it's fought. And before you get out on the battlefield... Your preparation and your strategy has already decided whether you're going to succeed or not. Um, once you get out there, I mean, it's a little too late, right, to start, oh, no, I should have brought this, and I should have had this prepared, and I should have learned how to do this. You, you've got to have that going in. And so Paul's going to instruct us here. Um, two things I want to point out to you. The first thing is I think we have to have a mindset, a certain mindset of, of war. Um, there's, there's a big difference between peacetime and wartime. Okay? So in America, we're in wartime right now. We've been over 10 years of war. Because of our technology and because of the way kind of the world operates, a lot of times we forget that. I don't think about the fact that we're in war every day. We don't live like we're in war every day. If you were to go back to World War I, World War II, everyone knew you were in war. You make sacrifices every day for that. Wartime is different than peacetime. There's a big difference in Christian living between peacetime and wartime. Paul says you're putting on the armor. So, so I mean, you can't, you can't get started with thinking this through um, the only thing worse than not preparing to go to war is not knowing you're in a war, right? Is getting shot in the chest and go, oh, I did not know that we had something going on here. <laughs> you you got you to understand what's happening. C.S. Lewis has this quote. I want to read it for you. It's, it's really good. He says this, good and evil, good and evil choices 
they both increase at compound interest. So a financial metaphor. He says, this is why the little decisions that you and I make each day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, perhaps a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories that you never dreamed of. And an apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today might be the loss of a ridge or a railway or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Those are small decisions today because we're in wartime have infinite consequences. This compound interest, right? We make decisions, but they're bigger than just that one decision, and they grow on each other. And you have no idea what the small things today you do will actually mean in the future, tomorrow, in a week, in two weeks, in three weeks, in four weeks. So you have to have this mindset. You have to have this this active searching through and thinking through your decisions. Is what I'm doing advancing the kingdom? Is what I'm doing protecting myself? Is what I'm doing beneficial and wise Or am I possibly setting myself up for failure in the future? Might not even know it. I mean, you you don't know, right? With that small burst of anger this afternoon, where you don't control your mouth, you don't know what that will lead to in a month, in two months. Or that one phrase that you yell at your kids that they never get out of their head. You don't know what that is. You don't know what it is that they'll be able to forget and forgive and what will actually kind of enter their psyche for the rest of their lives. Or that one act of goodness, that one act of obedience. I mean, you don't know, right? That one encouraging word to a friend where you pray with them. It could just be five seconds of talking. Or it could be an entry point to being able to speak truth into their life. And three months, four months, five months later, you might see them asking for prayer. A year later, you might see them being baptized and and being discipled and growing in Christ. You you just don't know kind of the compound interest that happens. But but you've got to have that mindset of something's happening here. Stagnation, I've said this before, stagnation is a myth. The, The idea that you can be in neutral right now is a lie. You're either going one way or you're going the other way. With every decision you make, you're going toward Christ, you're increasing your relationship with Him, you're working for His kingdom, or you're falling, you're you're losing ground here. And if you think you're in the middle, you're losing. And the kingdom's going. Gospel's marching. And so we're, we're in war. We're putting on armor. If you don't know you're supposed to put on armor, I mean, you, you've lost the game before it's begun. If you don't realize there's this struggle here, there's this tension. And then he says there, there are certain things, these weapons, these spiritual weapons that God has given us. He lists off a few here. Verse 14, he starts with the belt of truth. The belt keeps kind of everything together. This is the truth of what we believe Um, holds it all together. The gospel is not opinion. It's not preference. It's truth. It's historical. I've tried to hammer this into our heads, right? As I hammer it into my own head, that, that what I believe about Jesus is not because it makes me feel good or because it works for me. It's because it's true. Whether it feels good for me and whether it seems to be working for me. We, we've tended in evangelism to kind of try to persuade people to believe. Uh, and tell them it's going to work really well for you. Your life will be really well. You'll feel really good about it, things of that nature. Um, and so then when it doesn't, right, they're going to drop out. You lose them. Um, but the gospel is more like an ambassador, right? More like evangelism, which is something's happened in history 2,000 years ago. Whether you accept or not, it's not going to change that reality. 
It's not dependent on your preference or your whim. It's happened. You need to decide what you're going to do about it. Will you respond or will you not? But it's, it's happened. It's true. And he says that holds everything together. Um, something has objectively taken place. One of my favorite quotes um, by Karl Barth, he says, he was asked, when was he saved? And he says, about 2,000 years ago. <laughs> right? It wasn't dependent on him and something he brought in his life. He said, I was saved when, when he died and resurrected. Now, I didn't know about it, right, until a lot later when I kind of made that my own. But that's when it happened. That's when the victory was won. It's truth. So, so we have the belt of truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness in the Greek, dikaiosune, um, could be translated righteousness or justice. Um, we have this problem. There's, it's just one word in Greek. We have the two separate words for it. It creates problems in other translation areas um, throughout the scriptures. Um, but, but here you've got this idea that what protects us is this idea of justice or righteousness. I think both God's and ours. So God's righteousness, Romans 3 would say, is revealed in his saving us through Jesus. That's his justice, his righteousness, that he has come through on his promise to love and to redeem. And then you and I are given the task of justice and righteousness to put the world back to right. Where we see abuse, say it no more. Where we see racism, stand up and say that's not allowed here anymore. Where we see sin and temptation bring in power and healing. Where we see sickness, we... We care and we pray and we love. He says that, that's what protects us. That protects our hearts. This idea that God has saved us and we're called into that work of redemption, into that work of bringing justice to the world, of pushing back the dark that's around us. He says the shoes for our feet, what, what will prepare us to go out into the battlefield is this gospel of peace, this news of peace, which is kind of a paradox here. All right? We're talking about wartime, but we have this news of peace. We have this news of what God has done and the ultimate assurance that one day it will be fulfilled, it will be completed. We have the, the gospel of peace. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, back in the first century, um, you would have had these big wooden shields you put in front of you. And before battle, you would have wet them down with water. Um, because what would happen is, is before the battle started, they would shoot flaming arrows at you. Uh, and they would get distinguished, extinguished with the, the water on the shield. So you block it and then the, the fire would die down. What's interesting about this um, is that apparently, okay, I'm not much of a war guy, um, not a big fighter at all, right? You got fight or flight, I slap and run, that's my strategy. <laughs> you don't want to stay there, get whooped, all right? Um, but apparently, shields, particularly in this time, don't work very well by yourself. You've got a small surface area, okay, you can be hit on either side. You might not see something coming or whatnot. So what you would have done, the way a shield actually worked was you would have kind of set up in a row with, with your kind of team, your army, and you would have had um, at least eight or nine of y'all, right? Then you would have had a, another layer up top. And then you'd have a couple on the sides. So you'd have like this half square. And at that point, with the water and the shields, you were pretty much untouchable. And so you couldn't see these arrows coming. You didn't know when they were going to come. But, but you were guarded from that. He says, that's what our faith is like. That's what it's like when we have this raw, determined trust in God. That, that um, it's going to deflect arrows before we even know they're coming. Certain things are just not going to reach us because we've made that decision. We're following him. He's ours. We're his people. Notice, though, you need others to do this. This is what we come back to all the time. You need a community. You need people to watch your back. You need people to set up the shield beside you. War is not something you do by yourself. It's a short-lived war. War is something you do with an army, with a community. When you think the gospel is all about your forgiveness, here's what we've seen. You have a hard time understanding what the church is for. What do you need the church for? I've made a deal with Jesus. The church becomes optional 
And when you come, it's kind of like a memorial service. You're just remembering this dead guy. Rose again, but he's not here anymore. But you're remembering this cool thing he did for you a long time ago that's really going to come in handy for you when you die. And you kind of view the people around you as mutual Facebook friends. You all know the same person, right? Other than that, there's not much that connects you. You just happen to know the same person, love him, and so you kind of come and act like friends and maybe meet a couple people, things like that. But if there's actually change happening in the world, if there's actually slavery being defeated, people being released, you need a team. You need an army. If there's a struggle, I need people on my right and my left with shields who can watch my back, who can see things I can't see, who can fight for me when I can't fight. So you've got this, this community here. Um, so you have the shield of faith. He says, take the helmet of salvation. This will protect your head, the source of your life, knowing that you've been rescued, you've been saved. And he says, the sword of the spirit. This is the first offensive weapon, okay? The Holy Spirit inside of us, the power, presence of God. This is offensive. This allows us to go into the darkness. This is not all defensive. We're not um, sheltered here, just being beaten down and beaten down. No, we're the allied armies pushing back into Germany, getting rid of the darkness, getting rid of the evil in the world. Um, in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Gates are defensive. So if the gates of hell are holding up, that means the church is knocking on the gates. Right? Not that hell has come to the gates of the church and we're here just trying to survive until we die. It means we're going out and pushing back the darkness, which is what you see in Acts. Jesus resurrects, the disciples go out, say, sickness, get out of here. Oppression, get out of here. Abuse, get out of here. Sin, get out of here. Find life in the victory that Jesus has won. And we have the Spirit to help us do that. And then he, he says we also have the, the Word of God, the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the message that God speaks to us and challenges us with and convicts us with. The Word of God could refer to Jesus. That was the title for him. It could also refer to things spoken by God. Uh, we would come to have the Scriptures, right? This is our Word of God. This is what we read and have God speak to us through the Spirit and prepare us, challenge us, convict us. And he says prayer, right? He doesn't call prayer a weapon, um, but it's pretty hard not to see this one. He says pray at all times in the spirit that we would be bold, that we would have opportunities, um, that we would be protected and be able to declare boldly the task in front of us. So here's maybe a question I could ask this morning. What weapons have we just completely ignored or put down? I mean, you got the first question, right? Which is, do you, did you know that you were supposed to be putting on armor? Did you know that there was a struggle happening? The second question is, I mean, I think if we're honest, some of us have gone into this thing without some key weapons. So, so we don't touch prayer at all, and then we wonder why we run out after a month burning in flames. When sickness hits, or, or when um, sin and temptation kind of presses down in on us, or this relationship falls apart, we start to crumble, and, and we're not utilizing some of the things that, that we've been given. I mean, what, what things have you kind of put off the side that you need to start picking back up again? You need to take seriously prayer i think would be a big one reading the scriptures on a regular basis i think would be a big one having community around you i think would be a big one we're living between these two worlds there's a tension here we've got to do it wisely we'll end with this i'll ask you four questions what you call them battle evaluation questions or maybe post battle evaluations questions you could ask yourself um, as you as you try to live more wisely um, between these two worlds the first one would be this Say you've had a struggle, right? You've come out of this kind of um, time of tension um, and, and oppression in your life. And, and you look back and you can ask yourself, I think, one, what worked? 
What went well for me when that was happening? I mean, what, what helped me, right? What helped me endure? What helped me have faith? What helped me stand strong? What helped me get through that? Was my prayer life good? Was there something I found out about my prayer life, right? Like, I should pray at this time in the day, or I should get this kind of accountability partner. What, what went well for me? The opposite of that question number two would be, what, what didn't work, right? What, what went wrong for you there? I think one of the biggest struggles everyone faces, much less Christians, is that we just don't think about life. Socrates, the thing was who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Paul says the same thing similarly uh, in Ephesians 5 earlier in this book. He says, think carefully about how you walk. Just, just think about what's happening to you. You'll, you'll do better. So what worked? What didn't, go, what, what didn't go so well for you? What didn't work? Some of the best advice I was ever given in my life is to make a list of what brings me closer to Christ and a list of what brings me away from Christ and do the first and don't do the second. Pretty wise. <clears throat> I think when you make that list, when you, you think about what works, what doesn't work for you in those times, you'll see that that's not always just bad versus good. Sometimes it's morally neutral things. I've learned certain things about myself. I've learned that there are certain behaviors for me that aren't bad in and of themselves, but that I should avoid because they don't help me stand strong. So, so what went well? What doesn't go well? Then what did I learn? Did I learn something about myself? Did I learn something about my weaknesses? that I learned something about my community. Maybe I learned I really don't have that community around me. It came, and it, it just kind of bowled me over. I couldn't stop those errors because I was standing there alone looking like a fool with my shield. Maybe it was their fault, but most likely probably it was my fault. I haven't invited those people in, so maybe I've learned I just need to kind of build that around me for next time. Um, maybe I learned something about Christ. Maybe I learned something about God. What, what have I learned through that? And then the last one, number four, would be what needs to change, right? What, what do I need to pick up? How do I, how do I prepare for this next one? How do I march forward more successfully as a, a soldier, as, as one who's I'm living in the victory of Christ? I think when we come through a struggle, it's always good to look back and, and kind of ask those questions. And then even maybe when we're in, to try to take a break and kind of just evaluate the world around you. So, so next week, here's what we'll do, um, continuing on our victory series. We'll look at this end, okay? When Christ crushes all the enemies, we'll look at what that's like, what, um, how we should um, be uh, thinking about that, how we should be waiting for that, and, and what we should be expecting for that. Um, but, but this week, we want to um, look at this tension, okay? We've got this triumphal proclamation of Jesus' victory. He has won. He has defeated these powers. But the victory is not full yet. There's still some mop-up battles, real battles that are going on. And so we're called to put on the armor to prepare ourselves. And maybe today is a good day to, to ask yourself how you've been doing and, and how prepared you are in case something does come your way. I think we've said it before, it's coming your way, right? I mean, if you haven't hit one of these moments, it's, it's not far from you. You're on the clock. I mean, you're just, for that phone call, for that relationship, will you be prepared? Will you be able to stand strong? Or will you be surprised and go, I thought this was over? I didn't know these things were going to happen. By God's grace, we'll stand strong and together as community, we'll put up our shields and walk uh, towards our Lord, who's one, uh, and we'll come back uh, to end all enemies very shortly. So we love you. Uh, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. Uh, I pray that you would continue to bless us and continue to grow us, that we would find our life and salvation in you and you alone. Um, that we would find freedom from the things that enslave us and the things that oppress us, um, that we would be used as instruments to go um, and allow others to find that freedom as well, Father, um, that we would be faithful people living between these two worlds. Um, 
both anticipating um, your return and implementing your victory right now. Um, a time of, of rejoicing and celebrating what you've done and who you are, and a time of um, diligently, patiently working that out in our lives and the lives of the people around us. We love you, Father. We ask for your strength and your obedience and your courage to do these things. It's in your son's name that all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.